Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. On behalf of Dino Noble, uh, we ask that the judgment in this case be reversed on, on multiple grounds, the first being that the Court erred in denying judgment as a matter of law on the issue of duty, which in turn turned on foreseeability. This Court, and certainly one of the panel members in particular, is familiar with the prior decision of this Court in what we call Scott 1, and there's really three aspects of Scott 1 that are critical to this first argument we make. The first being that the argument was advanced in Scott 1 that the defined inquiry for foreseeability and therefore duty turn on the fact that we were emitting NOx or making a chemical where if people were exposed to it, it could be danger. And the court in Scott 1, I think, rejected that broader proposition and defined the foreseeability inquiry to be, was it uh, foreseeable at the time in question that Mr. Scott at a Calumet plant 108 feet below the stack that someone in that situation was actually in the orbit of danger? The second thing... Where, where, are you, where, where, are you, where in the opinion did we reject anything? I was saying that I think that you define the inquiry because at the beginning of Section 2 in the second full paragraph says the summary judgment record has evidence that Dino had actual knowledge of probability of injury because of the nature of it being unconverted NOx gas where people will, would inhale it. And then you, the panel goes on to say, but risk is not foreseeable if it's outside the orbit of danger. And so what I think is being said there is it can't be enough just that NOx is dangerous. It has to be, obviously, if that were the case, there would be strict well, that's liability. Foreseeability. Pardon? That's foreseeability. I think it, I don't think it is because then you would have strict liability on that element for every chemical plant and every, every plant in the nation that makes something. No, no, but but the, there's, a dis, there's a distinction between duty and foreseeability. Foreseeability is a component, if you will, first of duty and then more typically of proximate cause. Well, I think that those are, are different. Talking, now are we talking about foreseeability and we have or we, I thought you were starting with duty. I am starting with duty, but in many no, respects, I, duty. Was there, was there a, a, where in the trial record prior to the ruling on judgment as a matter of law does the district court rule on duty? The dist I don't believe that the district court made a finding of duty as a matter of law in this case. And in fact, inner judgment you on the jury find verdict. duty unless it's for the jury. Pardon? You don't find questions of law. Lawyers talk. Talk about, uh, talk about us making findings all the time. We don't do findings. Understood. So where is the conclusion? Where is the definition of the duty the, prior to the JAML ruling? Uh, the, the district court did not make a finding, a conclusion that a duty existed prior to the judgment as a matter of law finding. He denied the motion for judgment as a matter of law, which raised the question, then submitted a special interrogatory, which we objected to, to that procedure and then enter judgment without ever concluding as the district court that there was a duty in this case. And that now, was the sole I, basis. I, I have not been able to go through the record with the detail required. I assume there was quite a quite a um, an instructions conference in this case. There, there were two, one off the record and one on the record. Could you just give me the, this morning the, the train? The transcript site pages? Sure. The instruction conference on this particular issue is volume 10A, essentially the first eight pages of it. 
and that's where the objections are made, and then the judge uh, reacts to them and made the decision to submit instruction 17, which is the one that we primarily object to. Well, but 16 is part of the issue. Uh, 16 is the general negligence definitional instructions. Well, 16 incorporates the standard of care. 16 Your brief argues it was ignored or disregarded. 16 defines the term negligent consistent with MAI, Missouri it, Approved it, Instructions. It explicitly states negligence means the failure to use ordinary care. That's correct. Okay, that's adopting a standard of care, isn't it? No, no. The way that it works is that the failure to use ordinary care is proved by proving the standard of care through independent okay, evidence. Your, where, where in Lopez does it say that? Or any case? All, I, I believe that when you talk about what ordinary care is in a case that involves expert testimony or otherwise, in every single case you say the way it's presented to the jury is did the person do X, these acts? Secondly, was there, were you thereby negligent? Negligent is the failure to use ordinary care. And in a case that involves a complicated manufacturing plan, I think the cases are legion that expert testimony has to define what ordinary care under those circumstances is. And then that's what you use to decide right, whether well, or not there's been a breach. Give me your best case for that proposition. I would say, well, I don't know that this is briefed in this uh, particular case, but I do believe you, in... You argue standard of care all over your brief. I argue standard of care that it was not defined for certain and argue that they uh, that you have to have was, evidence of what the standard defined. of care is. That, I mean, Lopez says, you know, that or, or, or Lopez reversed because they, they had an aggravated circumstances standard yes. of care, and they said the default standard of care is ordinary care. Reverse. I think that... Well, the, the district court instructed on the default standard of care. I, I think that our objection is how he defined the standard of care as opposed to providing the general um, negligence definition with the district... Yeah, and, that, yeah, and then I'm saying, give me your cases. It's, I mean, his, his, his JAML... Our new trial rulings address this. I think I think that what I think that what Lopez is saying is that this can get to a submissible case on foreseeability, which they conclude is prospective, which is different than looking at foreseeability issues retrospectively, which is proximate causation. Sure. That's not what I were talking about. I'm, I'm trying to get at, I'm trying to get a hand my hands around your standard of care argument, which is kind of permeates your brief. I, our standard of care argument is that what had to happen in this case is, well, first off, it was error to say breached its duty of care in these ways, and then they define the standard of care using a disjunctive approach using five different ways, and our argument is that those are deficient because those are not sufficient to establish a standard those of care. Standard, those were breach instructions. Maybe they, should, maybe they were... Or, in applicable brief, 
See, doesn't it? I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm just not not figuring this out. But it seems to me that that uh, the judge implicitly made uh, a duty of care uh, conclusion, and he found that a reasonable and prudent person uh, would have anticipated the danger and the potential for damage, and that under those circumstances, that would breach the duty of ordinary care. Then he went on to define uh, in sixteen. Ordinary care and negligence, right? Right. And then he uh, uh, then went on to say uh, that if you find uh, any of these breaches of that duty, then damages could lie, right? Isn't that isn't that how he instructed the jury? I, I think that what he did a little bit differently than what you're describing is in the instruction. He gave a very unusual instruction in, in Missouri when he put in there that defendant breached its duty of care by, by setting forth these acts and that, that that's an error because that's assuming that there was, in, in fact, a duty and telling the jury that. But what you have to do under the cases that we do cite, you have to define the act that can give rise to negligence, and our point on appeal is that those are so vague and general and not tied to causation that those were deficient, and that would result in a new trial as opposed to a directed a judgment as a matter of law. But w because when, when you look at instruction 17, what he is submitting there are very general standards, such as the idea that you failed to follow your procedures. Well, I think that under Missouri law that that's deficient because it does, as the objection said in the instruction conference, give them a roving commission. It has to define what the act that gives rise to liability and causation is with some degree of specificity and that that didn't right. do that. And Are we you reading McNeil. from a case or just your argument? No, I'm, I'm naming McNeil would be a case which is the one that we cite. It's 372 Southwest 3rd at 909. The verdict directing instruction, which 17 is, must instruct the jurors regarding the specific conduct that renders the li defendant liable. can't be abstract and it can't be general and it has to tie to causation of the injuries. Because, and we cite SOP and we cite Pringle also for the proposition that when you do these disjunctive ones, every single one of those has to show that if we, that those instructions are tied to the causation of the injury as well, that every one of those has to not be general, not be a roving commission. And we cite Howard, which is from this court applying Missouri law, saying that under the instructions, the evidence must bring the causal connection beyond the nebulous twilight of speculation, conjecture, and surmise. And so by giving, just saying policies or weather, there's just that's just too general to be an appropriate instruction under Missouri law and also that if you go through the A, B, C, D, E, the five that they they have there, those are so uh, broad and general and not tied to causation that they gave the jury what Missouri recognizes in McNeil essentially a roving commission which is the proposition that it fails to advise the jury what acts or omissions of the parties, if any, found by it from the evidence, would constitute liability. Well, can I ask a question? Because I'm like not intimately familiar with the instructional process under Missouri's uh, sure. uh, instruction scheme. Um, 
but if I look at this and, and in the places where I ordinarily tried cases, both as a judge and a lawyer, um, in, in say Minnesota and North Dakota, you would have started off with a summary of claims and defenses as the very you know first substantive instruction once you get past the boilerplate. Plate. And it would not be unusual to say the plaintiff claims that the defendant breached its duty of care and then list exactly what's been listed in 17, right? And then you'd say the defendant claims that it did not breach the blah, 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 and you'd summarize whatever the defendant's claims were. But then when you got to the, the, the jury instruction that's the verdict director, you would just say the defendant breached its duty of care. Leave it silent after that and just say, you know, here's the claim. Here's the defenses. Here's what the experts say. At the end, you decide, jurors. Would that be consistent with what ordinarily happens under Missouri law? No, and I've tried many of these cases and done many of the instruction conference. The introductory instruction, even under the Eighth Circuit civil patterns, is simply they contend that they were hurt by this. It's very vague in general. Missouri places a true premium on the verdict directing instructions, mm -hmm. and they have them for each, for each count. And they have a lot of rules about verdict directing um, verdict directing instructions and that that is the instruction that really super matters mm -hmm. because it has to set forth every fact that has to be found for liability and not assume any disputed fact. And, um, and so that's, that's the one we argue off of. That's the one that uh, you look at to see whether they made a submissible case. It sets out every contested element necessary. And so under Missouri law, um, you would require an instruction on the duty of care that specifically sets out what the judge has found uh, the duty of care to be, and you're saying it's in, inappropriate under Missouri law to find that ordinary care is the standard of care. Right. Ordinary care doesn't. Ordinary care is defined by the standard of care. It doesn't s establish the standard of care. Okay. That's the distinction I would draw. Now, Missouri doesn't have instructions on duty because traditionally that's a decision made by the court. I'm talking about the negligence. And negligence is set forth, and I mean, if you look it up, it's 30, MAI 3101, and then also 1702, which is what the judge used for multiple acts of negligence. They definitely require you to set out the facts that the person did, and then say that that was that a breach. And then the way that you show it's a breach is not by arguing. You argue that there was a standard of care established in the evidence, and then that the uh, that they failed to meet the standard of care, counsel. With regard to uh, jury instruction 17, don't we have to look at that in light of the special interrogatory? Because you don't reach 17 until the jury's answered yes to that special interrogatory. Right, and I think that that goes to one of the points I was just talking with Judge Erickson. Missouri law is very clear. I believe that a assumed fact in a verdict director cannot be cured by a subsequent instruction. And they say, and that is, Bledsoe is the case we cite for that, 429 Southwest 2nd at 733. In the case of a clear direct... The chronology is reversed here. It wouldn't be a subsequent instruction. It's not. The instruction comes before the interrogatory is answered. Yes, and that's the point. If the verdict director assumes the controverted fact, you can't cure that later. I mean, there's cases that there, there's a case, for example, that we cite where they argued, you know, essentially what they say is if you put a disputed fact in the in the jury instruction, you can't fix that later on. And Bledsoe says if you have a clear, direct assumption of a controverted 
fact in a verdict directing instruction, we have said this cannot be cured by other instructions prop properly submitting the issue. And the real problem with the, the instruction on uh, 17, of course, is the jury had already been told that there's a duty of care, already been told before they answer that that their verdict has to be for the plaintiff, and then th that is a special interrogatory, and I think, you know, if you look at Rule 49, you can submit a special interrogatory, but that's part of the verdict form. It's not part of the instructions, and you have to have instructions. So you can't fix a verdict-directing instruction under Missouri law that assumes a fact. And so even though the special interrogatory uh, would, in fact, be a true and accurate statement of the law, uh, both as to, and, uh, uh, as to duty and breach, uh, it's insufficient? Yes, ab absolutely, because it has just a, it's just the legal conclusion from Lopez and what this court did in Lopez. And even if you look at Rule 49 on special interrogatory, uh, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 49, it specifically says you have to give instructions, tell them how to decide it. And what we had proposed in our alternative to Instruction 17 was the um, some definitional things around that. You know, it doesn't mention the word foreseeable. It doesn't say you look at orbit of danger. It doesn't talk about, it doesn't tell them or give them any guideposts. It's simply a legal conclusion. Do you find this yes or no? Um, in addition, Your Honor, the $30 million punitive damage award is here. Well, uh, I've, I've got another. Uh, certainly. Have you looked at whether there are cases that uh, map out a correct instruction under the restatement of judgments approach to to foreseeability and duty. I, I have not looked at the restatement of judgments on that. Well, let me, for me, then the, the pre preliminary question is, under our remand order, could the district court have made the, made the decision that since Lopez didn't address the issue and it other has, hasn't otherwise been addressed, I think the Missouri Supreme Court in this situation would follow the restatement of judges, judge, of judgment and leave foreseeability to the to the retroactive proximate cause inquiry. I don't think that he could have done that in light of Missouri law or even the what in mandate. Missouri law would have, could possibly have prevented that to say that it's retroactive. I think that no, no, no. Foreseeability is as as two roles, potential roles to play. Certainly, the dominant role is in proximate cause, in which it is a a retro, which is a retroactive inquiry. Right. The more limited or, or unusual aspect of foreseeability is to tie it into the question of duty, and the restatement of judgments rejected that approach. Right. And left foreseeability to the process that occurs after the court has decided duty as a matter of law. We explained that Lopez did not even consider that and that no Missouri court, appellate court, has considered restatement of judgments and that it might, and that our, that our dissenting panel member said that might even be the better rule. Why couldn't the district court have decided on remand that Performing its proper function under as a diversity judge, I, I conclude the Supreme Court of Missouri would have chosen to follow the restatement of judgments in this case. I think that that would have been contrary to, the, to for example, the non 
the still valid Kamishak case that we cite, which is considered, which foreseeability in the context of duty is not in the light of what happened, not in the exercise of hindsight, not to guard against things that are not likely to happen. I think Lopez well, we, looks we at didn't, it. We didn't, a, we didn't leave much with Kamishak. Well, I don't think you overruled. Well, I don't think you said that was overruled. Pardon? I said I don't think that that portion of it was you overruled. You said it wasn't controlling. Well, it's not a Supreme Court case. It's a, a Court of Appeals it would decision. Not, it would not be controlling on a federal district judge. I think Lopez, fairly read, talks about looking at it from the defendant's perspective in a forward-looking situation because they talk about, well, what mattered was okay, there was so like saying, one near you're miss. You're saying it would have been a bad decision. I, thought, I think that... I think that Missouri always looks at this as the situation at the time that the act happened wasn't foreseeable. And I think Lopez supports that under the duty analysis, not on, you know, proximate cause is different. I don't think, and it's, yes, um, I see that my time is, at, is um, up with respect a little rebuttal time if possible. Mr. Is it Schmieder? Schmieder, yes, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, I'm Rob Schmieder, and I have the pleasure of representing Teddy and Melanie Scott. We ask this Court to affirm the judgment of the District Court. Um, to start, I do want to point out that the when um, this Court addressed Comashack in the prior opinion, it did recognize that it had been superseded. And as Judge Loken just reiterated, this court actually cited two Missouri cases, Alcorn and Street versus Harris, where it did say that those issues of foreseeability were left for the jury. And the only instructions that we know of and given in those cases were the general negligence instructions, the ones that talked about the objective standard of what would an ordinary person do under the same or similar circumstances. I'd also like to point out that this court in Brown versus Davis, which is uh, 813 F3-1130, had also said that the district court, in that case, the, the issue of foreseeability was challenged on the appeal, and, the, and this court said the district court correctly instructed on general negligence principles and there was sufficient evidence for the jury to find that William had a legal duty to take appropriate... No, reading, reading generalities, just... I, I don't know. Well, but in this case, in addition to the you, general you, duty you instructions... You start out in your brief and say, we determined a reasonable jury could find emissions circumstances foreseeable. You just flatly misstate our order. We don't, we don't make findings... And we weren't considering a trial record. We were taking the summary judgment record and saying what might happen if the case were fully tried. Then it was fully tried, and you come back and you, and you sell the district court on the notion, well, we, the state circuits already decided duty and foreseeability, so all we have to do is charge them on breach. And that, that created, in my view, a, a terrible... Uh, decision on remand. Well, I I never once told the district court that this court had decided foreseeability. Well, you told us in our brief that we decided it. 
Well, you decided, it says, you decided a reasonable jury could find that the circumstances of the omissions in this case created some probability or likelihood of harm sufficiently serious that ordinary persons would take precautions to avoid it. But that was in response to their JML argument. The real issue that I see here is if you look at 17, 17 looks like it's directing a verdict if they find a fact, right? And I just don't think that, like, it can't possibly true be true that a failure to follow work procedures necessarily violates a duty of ordinary care, right? People enact um, work procedures all the time that are more stringent and more detailed than what ordinary care may be, right? And yet if you read 17, it says if the defendant, you find the defendant breached his duty by doing, like, failure to follow its procedures. I mean, I can't, I mean, I, I don't see where that, I mean, that presumes that there's been, a, that, that that is in fact a duty, and uh, this court's never, in, I mean, this court, the district court never instructed on what the duty was beyond just ordinary care, right? And so, I mean, I get where you could argue that says the, the duty of care is ordinary care, and it would be whether or not a reasonable, prudent person would anticipate the harm, right? And, you know, but that, that requires some separate finding that just merely failed to follow its work procedures. And, you know, since these things are in the disjunctive, you got to take every single one of them and read them as though that may be the basis for the decision, right? Correct. There's, a, there's no doubt about it. But the evidence, as, as the su Supreme Court of Missouri in the Pierce case that we cited in our brief said, um, what usually is done may be evidence of what ought to be done, but what ought to be done is fixed by that standard of reasonable prudence, whether it usually is complied with or not. Mm -hmm. And so the, the duty is an objective standard of care. And the evidence that came in was the objective standard of care was to follow the safety hierarchy. And the safety hierarchy was to eliminate Where knocks. Where do we see that? Where do we see the jury told that? The jury was, that's the evidence that came into the jury. The jury was. What was the jury instructed? The jury to was. Find, a, I'm sorry. And how? how <clears throat> the, the the court has to make the ruling of the ultimate ruling of duty. Correct. The jury has to make a finding a finding of, of foreseeability as it affects the question of duty. Correct. That was through the special and, interrogatory. And, no, it wasn't. That isn't what it said. The, the, the judge gave that special interrogatory, which, by the way, was proposed by Diner Nobel um, in, in, to, the, to the court, specifically to test whether those facts existed of foreseeability. And the judge confirmed the, the jury, it. The jury, the, 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 the verdict, the jury was instructed to decide duty. Did the circumstances create some probability of harm to someone on a neighboring facility? sufficiently serious that ordinary persons would take precautions to avoid it. If the district court had said that's, that's, the, that's what I conclude the duty is in this case, then the jury could be instructed that. Instead, the jury was instructed to find that. They were asked whether those facts existed. Did those circumstances exist under the test of foreseeability? Without ever being told that what the duty was. 
except implicitly, I guess, if you read that. Well, the, the, well they were told the duty. The, 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 the duty defined in negligence, what care an ordinary person would take under the same or similar circumstances, is the and same the test. counsel just says that's wrong. Well, he's, I disagree. That's the same exact Where test. Where did the district court the, broker that disagreement? Give me the give me the transcript or appendix pages where that that difference of opinion was argued and the court ruled as a matter of law and on a question of defining the duty. I know I, I know for a fact that the district court in the post trial motions pointed back and said that instruction I, which yeah. which which gives the same standard. That's the one that I gave on duty. And the special interrogatory was to test those facts because the district court had even so talked. The court just said after the fact, "Well, I did it." No, well, that was that was the discussion we had beforehand. Because when we when we were when we when we had the discussion, when you read the instruction but, conference, nobody gives me a cite to the <coughs> excuse me uh, to the instruction conference where the district court sorted out in the context of our struggle with with the defining Missouri law under Lopez, the, the intertwining of duty and foreseeability, and parse, properly parsing out the functions of the court and the jury. And, and so I, we, we yeah. get served up with, well, there was sufficient evidence. Doesn't matter how it was done. No, I, I, can, I can only tell you, I can't cite, there, there was an instruction conference off record. I don't think the court did it. The court the should court. have, I, in my view, the court should have considered <clears throat> whether to instruct consistent with the restatement of judgments. Was that argued? That 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 was not argued. What was uh, argued was that the what was argued after our after our opinion <clears throat> carefully said no Missouri court had considered that, and it wasn't presented to the Lopez court. The the only the only matters that were argued below were. The parties had mutually agreed to sub submit the special interrogatory, and and uh, then Dino had had offered or tendered an instruction that, quite honestly, misstated Missouri law on multiple levels, and the court said, "No, that misstates the law." Okay. I believe the the general negligence instruction with the the special interrogatory were proper, and that's what the district court did. And this court, in, in the Costalek case that we cite in our brief, pointed out that that using a special interrogatory to resolve a whole claim in that case, that, that involved a vexatious refusal um, to pay claim against an insurance company, and the court simply asked... I thought, I thought that site was completely off point. It was a plain error discussion, and if anything, it helps the defendant. Well, I... You, you've stated your... That's my response all right. to what you argued. Well, I, I, I believe that, that that's exactly what happened here with the special interrogatory. The special inter interrogatory defined uh, for, used the very test of foreseeability. We didn't have a plain, that wasn't a plain error situation here. Well, the, 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 for it not to be a plain error situation, Dino would have to prove that its instruction was proper. Its instruction wasn't proper. Its instruction stated that well, <coughs> that they argued, they argued your approach was inconsistent with the remand, right? Correct. Okay. Preserved. 
to address some of the other issues. Well, well wait a minute. Yeah. Let's let's not go so. I mean, I know we seem like we've been arguing about this for all day, but let's not go so quickly here because what I'm concerned about is this: Are you in a position at this point, with because the the court never uh, made a specific determination on the on a duty of care and instructed uh, the jury on that duty of care, and instead through uh, its instruction in, in 17 basically listed some possibilities and saying any one of them is a breach of this unknown duty that they haven't fully defined, right? I mean, isn't it true that at this point to defend this verdict, there's just got to be uh, that if this jury were properly instructed, there, there would be no other alternative but for them to reach the same verdict that they did? Well, the Anyhow? Yeah, that, and I guess I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding the court. Well, maybe I, I misunderstand be, Because it. the jury was instructed on duty. The, the court used the MAI 11.07, which talked about care that an ordinarily careful person would use under the same or similar circumstances. That is the required instruction under Missouri law. So that's the duty instruction. Okay, that's a duty instruction, but they've never, the jury, he never instructs on I mean, he's got a, a directed verdict in 17, where if you find A, B, C, D, or E, that that that's a uh, that that is a breach of that duty. That's the that's the Missouri approved instruction. That's not a directed not verdict in, instruction. Not in this case. Not in this situation. There's never been this situation. It may be in toxic tort cases. Fine, but the the remand in in this case. <clears throat> you get carefully explained. This is not. This is not in Missouri law anywhere. But when you have a situation as, no as Missouri instructions no. on how the on how the jury handles foreseeability to assist the court making its legal duty determination. There, there is no Missouri approved instruction on that. Correct. Right. There, so there's no approved MAI, and therefore all this this. Gospel that an approved MAI must be followed does not apply here. Well, I, know, I, I disagree with that because the duty, the, the, the duty. Well, I, you, the you duty. May, you may have a point on eleven oh seven, but not on not on seventeen. Eleven oh seven is the backup to sixteen. Correct. We still have the problem of the instruction on foreseeability, never telling the jury what the duty is, and never and never. Defining its its foreseeability task. Well, the court did. Other than to say, oh, if you find he violated any procedure anywhere in the second startup, you can find him liable for negligence. Well, no, that's not true because the that is true. That's what it says. Well, no, it no, it, it asked the jury: Did the circumstances on this date were did they create some probability of harm? Sufficiently serious that ordinary persons would take precautions to to do that. That Your was verdict this. must be for the plaintiffs if you believe first plant def defendant breached its duty of care. I think you're re counsel. Like you're reading from the special interrogatory, and Judge Loken's reading from 17. Don't we have to look at them together as a whole? We we do because that's the that's the test is to look at the entire charge charge to that and 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 if the court would look at. And it's in it's on it's in um, section 10a. The court added that breach of that that language breached its duty of care specifically to address the addition of the special interrogatory because that was language that Dino had encouraged the court to add and 
this court will know when it reads the instructions conference that I was surprised the next morning when all of a sudden they were objecting to that instruction. I said, well, I thought we had an agreement here because you had added the language they wanted, breached its duty of care by, and then we argued over it and the district court said, no, this is the right way to do it. This is how I'm moving forward. But when you do look at the entire charge, the jury had both the special interrogatory, which incorporated the definition or test of foreseeability, but also had the general negligence standard, which is the same objective standard. But that's not what 17 says. 17 says that these are the elements, right? That's what 17 is telling us because it's a jury director. It says the first element is did the defendant breach their duty of care? And if you find one of those five things, then they breached their duty of care, right? And the second says that if you've done that, you were thereby negligent. I mean, I'm not sure what they mean by that. So if the defendant in any one or more of the respects submitted in the paragraph first was thereby negligent, and third, as a direct result, causation damages, right? And the director says that your verdict must be for the defendant and against the plaintiffs unless you believe the defendant breached its duty of care. And then your argument is essentially that the next clause was negligent, reincorporates the ordinary care instruction, and the jury is going to understand that to be the case. That's exactly how the Missouri approved instructions are designed and have been for decades. Yes, that's exactly how every single case in Missouri is handled. But there is no Missouri MAI on this intertwining of duty and foreseeability. The district court had to make that up. And I believe the court did not abuse its discretion in handling it the way it did. It's de novo on the question of because duty is an issue of law, this is all de novo in my view. Well, I don't know what else the court could have done that would have been materially different, that would have resulted in a different outcome. Because if all we're talking about is shifting over the test from the special interrogatory, which the jury had, over into an instruction, the outcome would have been the same. It doesn't change anything. Not necessarily if it had adopted the brief statement of judgments approach and limited foreseeability to its retroactive role in the proximate cause inquiry. And then made presumably a pre-submission decision on duty based on the evidence. How we approach this, the court found that there was a duty, but was understanding the remand requiring the jury to make sure there were facts supporting foreseeability, which is why the special interrogatory. Did the district court engage in one of these cases that Diana relies on, McNeil and Halvert and the others, on the much more specific definition of duty than just ordinary care? Did the court discuss why those don't apply? No, we did not. Diana didn't raise it. The court, we didn't discuss it. 
Well, I assume it's implicit or explicit in their proposed instruction, which you say is wrong as a matter of law, presumably because it got into the, those things. The, the, their, their proposed instructions did not use the same language mostly as the Missouri approved instructions, except for adding in misstatements of law on, for example, duty is your job. No, that's for the court. Um, the, told the, that the defendant was to, the foreseeability was to be judged by what the defendant believed or, or could have been done. No, it's what an ordinary careful person should have done under those circumstances. So again, when you, when you look at the instructions and the entire, this, which include the special interrogatory and the entire charge, believe that the jury was properly instructed and there would not have been a, a different outcome um, under these circumstances. I know I'm, I'm less than a minute now. Um, I did want to point out a few things, um, especially regarding punitive damages, because I don't think that, I think that, that some of the record, Dino is asking this court to weigh the evidence versus just consider what's before the court what, that supports the verdict. But when the, when the court looks at what happened, and I laid this out in my brief, this wasn't a situation where Dino ran through one stop sign. This was a situation where Dino ran through five or six or seven stop signs. This was reckless indifference. And that's what the jury found, and there was clear and convincing evidence of that. I'd also like to point out two other things. They talk about um, expert Morningstar did not do a forward-looking analysis. That's simply not true. She talked about what a reasonably, what an engine, chemical engineer does. Talked about hazard identification, safety hierarchy, and um, the, there was evidence of the 40,000 parts per million I'd just like to refer to the court to 2B, page 76, 3A, page 36, and their own witness, 5B, page 43 through 44. I see my time is up. Unless the court has any other questions, we'd ask the court to affirm the judgment. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Your questions, Judge Loken, on how this might be. Uh, submitted under the restatement. We do have torts where foreseeability is presented to the jury. And, um, in fact, in the initial Scott opinion, the court cites to them the Union Pacific case, for example. It's an owner-occupier case. And the owner-occupier cases require that the owner know that there's a dangerous condition there and foresee that it could be dangerous to a passerby. And so if you were looking for some Missouri instructions that under those circumstances would present this to the jury, I think 22 is what I believe it is, but the instructions are actually set out in Alcorn versus Union Pacific. And it might be a means of doing what you're, what you're talking about here. Um, but you know, we should make no mistake that that instruction 17, and we agree, and we say in our brief that you can't do MAI under the circumstances, but instruction 17 is not MAI because it injected the assumption of breach of the duty of care. The jury instructions that are normally used don't have that language. And Judge Grass, to your, to your point, I think Missouri law, when you read our cases, and maybe you have already, but if you have a verdict directing instruction that tells you to assume a fact, you can't try to cure that later with something else, because look at what the jury's already been told at the time they get to that special interrogatory. They've already been told their verdict has to be for the plaintiff if they find facts separate from that, right? They've already been told that we breached a duty. 
And that interrogatory is asking, is, you know, essentially the legal conclusion of whether there's a duty. And if you use special interrogatories, Rule 49 says you have to give instructions. You can't just give them a verdict form. You have to give them instructions and talk to them about what facts you could actually find. And Judge Loken, you're, you're completely correct that at the instruction conference and at no point did Judge Autry say, okay, well, I'm finding a duty based on this and I'm going to instruct on this. But we objected repeatedly at 10A, 4 through 7, that there was no tie between any duty and the alleged negligence. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Case is a complicated case again, and it's been thoroughly briefed and well argued. And difficult issues. We'll take it under advisement and do our best with it. <laughs>